Okay, I'm back. I, I shook off the Lieutenant Governor, and here we are for the second piece of the legislature track in, um, of the day. Um, they should have titled this one All the Money. This is about 80% of the state budget is represented by the, is spent or dedicated to the agencies that are up here on stage with us. Um, this is a couple of program notes. This is, as you know, the 85th legislature track. It's designed to give you an idea of what's going to, going to happen or what's going to be talked about. I don't know what's going to happen, but what's going to be talked about at least as we go into the next legislative session. There's lunch on the mall at, uh, I think, 12.15, a bunch of food trucks, uh, pray against the rain, at least for an hour there. At the end of the day, there is a reception that everybody's invited to up at the AT&T Center. Um, we're going to go for 60 minutes or so. We'll leave uh, 15 or 20 minutes for questions at the end. Please silence your phones. If you're leaving your phone on in order to uh, tweet, uh, the hashtag for this is hashtag TTF. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'd like to welcome you, if, you haven't, if you're just getting here, to the, our sixth uh, Texas Tribune Festival. Kind of hard to believe there's been six of them so far. Um, I'm not going to do long introductions because you've got them in your program, um, but we have, as I said, the people in charge of some of the biggest agencies from here to here, uh, James Bass from Texas Department of Transportation, Mike Morath from the Texas Education Agency, Raymond Paredes from the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board, and Charles Smith from the Health and Human Services Commission. Um, I guess the first place to start with you guys, since you are so much of the money, is briefly, what are your agencies' needs and wants out of this next legislative session? You know, what do you need them to do? What do you hope that they don't do? And what, are, you know, what kind of budget are you going to have? What do the 4% cuts mean? Just give me a quick brief on this. Yeah, so at TechStot, the obvious answer to the first question is we're going through sunset. So the, the first thing we need is to be continued um, after 2017. Mm -hmm. We're somewhat... That would be news if you weren't. Thank you. It, I, I'm glad to hear that. Um, the, we're in a, a unique position with the 4% cut because the 4% deals with general revenue and general revenue-related funds, of which we receive very little. Right. Uh, the only GR that we really receive is to pay off uh, debt service on one of our borrowing programs. At the same time, over the last 24 months voters have approved significant amounts of additional funding to TxDOT through both Proposition 1 and Proposition 7 in November of 14 and 15. So uh, the legislative appropriations request that we just submitted for 18 and 19 uh, is in the neighborhood of $30 billion for that two-year period. And compare that to 16, 17, we're around $22 billion. So we're seeing a significant mm -hmm. um, increase, hopefully, in that, all subject to revenues coming in over time, but hopefully um, that additional funding that voters have approved, even giving all the competing priorities, the legislature will be able to provide that into the TxDOT programs. Is that a building boom? It will be. A lot of it is being focused currently on our five metro areas. Right. One of the things our commission jump-started on is a, an issue that the legislature dealt with last session. There was a practice in the transportation world, the shorthand was called diversions. And that was the practice of the legislature taking some revenue that was going into the highway fund and appropriating it to agencies other than TxDOT. Well, the legislature ended that practice in our current budget. So for the two-year period, that equaled about $1.3 billion. Governor Greg Abbott tasked our commission 
to go and identify the largest choke points in our five large metro areas. And our commissioner, Bruce Bug, who's on a panel later today, has kind of led that effort, and we're focusing on, again, in the five large metro areas, putting that money towards uh, the choke points. Okay. okay. So what's going on with Texas Education Agency in this legislative session? What do you think um, you need from them? What do you hope they don't do this time? Well, we, um, we prepared, like every other agency, prepared a legislative appropriation request. Right. Um, and, and along with that, we actually, um, in our strategic plan, provided a list of impediments and redundancies in the st in statute that um, uh, can sort of throttle creativity and innovation and otherwise increase cost uh, needlessly without improving student outcomes. So I, I think our primary focus is on those areas um, in terms of the specific requests um, uh, there, the four percent cuts um, uh, in terms of how it affects TEA is also um, somewhat unique because the foundation school program was exempted from that. So right. we we oversee about twenty two billion dollars a year in expenditures for the state of Texas, um, but um, the overwhelming majority of that is exempt from the um, four percent consideration. So there's a but there are. Um, uh, so, so we went through sort of a prioritization scheme with regard to the programs that were not exempt and attempted to um, preserve programs that we knew had an impact on kids and had the impact on the most kids. Um, so um, that doesn't mean that um, there won't be some uh, disruption of, of services for students in some areas, uh, but we, we tried to do what was most effective for the kids of Texas. Are you asking for or expecting something big? I had the lieutenant governor up here for an hour this morning. He talked a lot about school choice, he's obviously got some plans. Property taxes, mm -hmm. um, from the agency standpoint, are there some big changes you're wanting or expecting? Um, we, I, I, I try to take the, the role that as a state employee, I do what they tell me. Um, so, um, uh, the, the, um, so I don't know that I have either expectations for wants or needs. Um, uh, generally, I'm... Um, uh, a, a fan of state leadership and, um, and support their, their direction. Okay. Higher Ed, what are you expecting here? The uh, obvious uh, critical issue is levels of funding for higher education. Uh, the coordinating board has a responsibility to recommend levels of funding. We've recommended uh, that uh, both the two- and four-year institutions be funded for enrollment growth, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, they... Uh, uh, be funded for the uh, inflation factor in higher education. And we've also recommended that for universities, we put $150 million into performance-based uh, measures. And we have a very simple metric that we've proposed that we fund universities. $150 million would be allocated on the basis of how well universities do in graduating students overall and then right. graduating, uh, in particular, at-risk students. Or the second uh, large item of funding uh, that we're concerned about is for financial aid. Uh, it's important to remember that 60% uh, of the, of the uh, students coming through the K-12 public system are poor. They need uh, financial aid in order to, to uh, go on to higher education, so we've recommended increases in that. But the coordinating board takes a position. We're not going to recommend any increases in appropriations if we don't simultaneously propose measures that are likely to yield better outcomes. Right. So we're not going to propose an increase of uh, $100 million to do business as usual. So, for example, in financial aid, we are 
going to recommend that we uh, lower the number of hours for which students are eligible for funding. Right now it's uh, 150 hours for 120 hour degree. We propose to lower that to 135 hours. Uh, we want to incentivize students to uh, finish more quickly. Right. But our biggest, our, our biggest priorities are overall appropriations to our institutions of higher education how and much, financial aid for How much pressure students. are you guys, particularly higher ed, and I know this is going to be the constituent institutions to, in large measure, how much pressure is there going to be from the legislature for efficiency? You know, one of the things Patrick said and others have said in state government is the schools, the colleges are spending too much. And the problem, you know, one of the problems from their standpoint is that the state doesn't need to spend more, tuition needs to come down, and that's driven as much by costs of college as by ability or inability to raise taxes or tuition. There's no doubt that higher education needs to become more efficient than it is. There was a study that was done uh, some years ago by uh, the McKenzie Consulting Group, and they determined that there was a built-in cost inefficiency in higher education of between 15 and 30 percent. I happen to believe that we're closer to the 15 percent range than 30 percent, but still we can do much more. But it's also important to point out that there are a lot of costs that are beyond the control of uh, institutions of higher education. For example, the, the cost of technology, computer technology, the cost of complying with federal regulations if you uh, receive federal research dollars. For a research university like UT Austin, the, the cost of complying with federal regulations can be $100 million a year. Right. Uh, we have uh, a lot more expenses related to developmental education, uh, helping students uh, succeed. So it's not, it's not just wastefulness. There's also the, the, the issue of exemptions and waivers. Everybody knows about the Hazelwood exemption, which right. uh, costs about $180 million a year to all our institutions. That's a cost that they, they bear with uh, relatively small levels of assistance. So it, it's, it's more than just... Uh, being a, efficient. a quick point there. Do you think that the legislature is going to fix the Hazelwood issue? I don't know. It's $360 million, I guess, for the biennium, something it's, like that. They've I, talked about fixing it. We thought we, were going to work, we thought we were going to do it last session. It didn't happen, so I don't know. Okay. Um, you have 60 or 70 agencies over there, don't you? <laughs> it seems like it sometimes. <laughs> so what, what are you expecting? What are you asking for? And um, what are you needing from the legislature? What are you afraid of or, or expecting them to do to you? Well, as, as Mike pointed out, all state agencies have submitted their legislative appropriations request, and uh, we've done that same. Right. Uh, realizing and understanding that the, uh, this is going to be a very tight uh, budget year, so what we've tried to do is uh, focus on the needs right. uh, of the uh, system. And as an example, uh, it's been clear that uh, everyone wants us to take a look at the foster care system and CPS and so we have uh, that listed as one of our priorities. Right. Uh, we also are looking at maintaining our current level of services uh, for our entitlement uh, programs uh, that we have to have, as well as uh, some of those programs that, if we maintain their levels of funding, actually helps drive down long-term costs associated with state government. Mm-hmm. So we've uh, focused on that. And then the other part is we have our uh, state hospital and state-supported living center, our infrastructure associated with mental health, behavioral health, and intellectual and developmental disabilities is is deteriorating and crumbling. So we've asked for some uh, maintenance uh, aspects that, again, will, if we're able to uh, fix those things now, will actually save the taxpayer dollars later on down the road. 
And then most, and then the other part of that is we've asked for, uh, we didn't actually assign a dollar amount to it, but we've asked the leadership uh, to determine and decide a vision for the state supported state hospitals and state supported living centers. And so we're mm-hmm. going to look for the legislatures and the state leadership to chart out a vision for state, for Texas, what that needs to look like and set it out and to fund it. And then our agency will go and operate it operational. Do you think you can get that through in a legislative session? Sort of redo those living centers? Well, I think one of the thing that is necessary is that when you start looking at uh, our state hospitals and our state supported living centers and the fact that we have uh, maintenance aspects now that are going undone right. that are actually uh, at risk of causing us uh, accreditation. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, we close down state hospitals and we're in dire shape. Uh, we also have state-supported living centers that have uh, maintenance issues that, are, again, uh, could affect uh, their federal funds and those type of things. And so we're needing to get these things done and to begin to make a decision today as what the future needs to look like so right. that we can then develop what the processes are in order for us to get there. And so I believe that uh, there are things that we can do, decisions we can make today that in the long term will actually uh, benefit taxpayers. Just as one example, we were in uh, Rusk a couple of weeks ago at the Rusk State Hospital and talking with staff and there was an employee <laughs> and there was a chair sitting in the middle of the room uh, with a person sitting in it. And so why are you sitting in an empty room? Well, because the state hospital had asked for $2 million uh, to uh, change and harden the ceilings and those type of things so that there's not a risk of uh, ligature hanging in, right. uh, and, the, um, and the door jams and those type of things. Uh, but without getting the funding, they have actually resorted to hiring staff 24 hours a day in, some of the, in these rooms and sitting there to ensure that because the um, residents can come in and out the patient. And uh, that person has to sit there to ensure that no one harms so, themselves. So rather than bring the room, room, spend the money to bring the room up to standard, they have to have somebody watch the room. And, and we spend one to two million dollars a year having people 24 hours a day sitting in these rooms, even at night. And so one of those things I want to say is if we get the two million dollars, we can repair the facility, that issue goes away. Right. And those staff, we can then divert to other aspects of the, of the work um, and put them in those vacant positions and we can actually lower the cost of government in the long run. Is that just Rusk, or is that around? That's across the system, lots of places. So you're in a unique position in some ways because the, um, the way that your problems present are always tend to have a name. This child is in trouble, or this person is in trouble. Uh, they tend to make headlines. Um, you know, Everybody has read stories about foster children sleeping in state offices, about problems in child protective services, the governor's laid down a pretty clear um, no mas policy. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to tolerate this. Tell me, tell me how you write that system. You know, so address those headlines a little bit and those problems a little bit in terms of um, what does it mean when they say, "I don't want to see any more kids sleeping in the state office buildings. I don't want to see any more of these child protective services cases blow up." Walk me through that. Well, actually, uh, one of the things that the governor said is that he wants to end child deaths. Right. that are dealing with uh, CPS. And so there's a, a two-pronged approach that we're going to do that. Uh, one is we're going to work on transforming our system, our delivery of services, and we're taking staff back to the core vision mission of the program is uh, let's see children 
and stop them from being subject to abuse and neglect. So the first thing you have to do is getting the home. And so we are asking for additional staff so that we can have those investigators that actually get in those homes on a timely basis. How much uh, staff? We're asking about 1,300 uh, staff that we'll be putting uh, more than 11, 1,200 of those on the front lines. And what's that cost? Uh, the uh, total cost uh, for DFPS is a little north of $400 million, and that includes uh, staff. We're also changing the foster care system. We're asking for a rollout of our foster care redesign, mm-hmm. uh, eight different catchment areas. Uh, the way that the system had previously been doing that was asking for um, one catchment area per legislative session. Right. And uh, my point was, if this system is working, and this is one of the things that we think will benefit uh, children and allow children to have better services, then why are we asking for one uh, catchment area every two years? Let's go ahead and ask for what we really need and what will make a difference for these kids, because that's the first thing that's the most important. Right. And, and then we will build our case and, and uh, inform the legislature, and then we'll follow the direction. So we're, we're going to do that. The other thing that we're doing is um, we're making sure that our staff are trained. Uh, we're making sure that they have the proper training uh, and that they are confident in the training that they receive. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to work on uh, reducing the turnover mm-hmm. aspect. Uh, we're training our supervisors, making sure that we can create an environment where these staff know that they're treated with dignity and respect, just like we expect them to treat our external customers. Right. And, and, and so as we continue to work on uh, the staff uh, aspect of improving the environment for the staff, reducing the uh, caseload. We're going to look at the money that's being spent currently in the foster care system mm-hmm. and, and see how we can uh, realign that money existing out for staff salaries based upon meritorious work. So people who come to work, do great jobs, do great work, they should be rewarded. And so we're going to look at revamping the whole system to ensure that we're able to do that. We will still have cases where children will be in offices. As an example, if you have a, a police go out on a call at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and um, a foster care, a, a CPS caseworker is called out and that child has to be removed from that situation, that person is going to come back in the office, spend the, spend the night in that office. What we don't want to do... Spend one night in the spend office. Spend one night in the right. office. What we don't want to do is have children staying in offices for two or three nights right. because we can't find child placement agencies around the state. And I think we can go back, look at the way that we're calculating our rates, what that reimbursement to proper uh, amounts should be, and we will be able to increase and improve the uh, placement capacity, and that will eliminate uh, some of that. And that's one of the aspects of the foster care redesign will help to drive that process. Is that the biggest present tense problem in your ag- in the agencies that you oversee? That is a really big problem. It's not. Right. And with HHS, uh, every day brings a new new issue and problem. And so uh, we have, you know, that we are dealing with Zika. Uh, as an example, right. uh, we're also dealing with the 1115 waiver and, and what that means uh, from the aspect of billions of dollars into our safety net, hosp- and safety net program in our hospitals mm-hmm. and, and the funding for Medicaid and low-income in- uninsured. And so all of these aspects at any given time can, right. can bubble up and pop up, as well as a lot of other things that just seem that they're not on the radar. Okay. What's on the top of your radar screen I mean, if you look at, you know, what's the thing that you walk into your office every morning and you go, okay, I'm going to spend 20% of my time or 80% of my time on X? The most important issue to me is uh, improving completion rates. Uh, We need to improve our graduation rates for universities. Uh, In Texas, uh, the uh, 
six-year graduation rate for universities is uh, about 59%. If you uh, remove uh, A&M and UT Austin from the calculation because they're by far the most selective institutions in the state and you would, you would assume that they would have higher completion rates. Right. The six-year completion rate for all the other 36 public universities is about, is about 50%. Nobody could possibly be pleased with that number. Uh, for our community colleges, the uh, six-year completion rate for a two-year program is about 30, 30%. Mm-hmm. So we, we, have to, uh, we have to improve the productivity of our public institutions. How, how, much of that, how much of that can you hang on? Uh, I know this is an old five, but how much of that can you hang on the public institutions, and how much of that is a student-to-student problem? You know, this student is working part-time, or this student got all they needed, and it didn't turn out, it turned out to be something short of a degree. Is that really the right metric? Well, it's the most important metric. We know that, uh, that, that uh, getting uh, two years of, uh, of uh, higher education without completing a credential, whether it's a certificate or an associate's or baccalaureate degree, doesn't uh, yield much of a bump in terms of uh, income. Okay. That's the problem if a legislator comes to you and uh, shakes his or her finger, that's the issue they're talking about? That's what I get uh, fingers shaken at me most often for. <laughs> we'll, we'll go down the hand and figure out which finger. You know? <laughs> yeah. So public education, there are no problems there, right? Uh, so that was a slow burn. Was a, um, so public education, I guess the headline of the moment is this special ed uh, limit, or how would you characterize it? This was the idea that there's an only, no more than 8.5% of the kids in a given district or school should be yeah, that's a special not, needs program? That's, that's, Car- prob- that's not really an accurate characterization. Of it, the, fix the, that but there is a, there's a, essentially there's a reporting tool um, that the agency uses that if you exceed 15% um, of your student population having been placed in special education, the agency asks why. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the way the report works is that if you exceed eight and a half percent, there's a uh, it it changes from a zero to a one on the report. It's really the uh, the only impact. But but the the we are in fact examining whether or not that monitoring system um, uh, should be changed. And I think I think we'll we'll likely make some tweaks to that um, uh, this year in our in our rulemaking process. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I mean, our, our our first priority is making sure that students who are eligible for special education services have access to special education services. I mean, we're, do you think they generally do? Um, yes. Uh, the short answer to that question is yes. I mean, the the the, the thing is, is in um, you know we have we have twelve hundred school systems in the state of Texas. We, we employ over over six hundred thousand people um, in K twelve institutions. Um, you know, people who work in public education genu- generally want what's best for children. Otherwise, they would have chosen a different profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the question is whether the rules um, and the sort of regulatory environment that people operate in um, um, help provide the right kind of incentives um, um, for consistently high um, um, impact on kids. And so we, we constantly reevaluate the sort of rulemaking framework that exists to ensure that we're giving our kids the best possible chance. Okay. Let me back up a minute, and, and instead of just talking about the headline, what do you think, what's the chest thumper for you? What's the one where they say you need to, biggest what, present problem? Yeah, I mean, our, our, uh, our 
most compelling focus is improving outcomes for kids in Texas. There's five and a half million souls in Texas public schools, and um, the level of preparation coming out of K-12 um, in higher education um, is um, good relative to where it's been historically, but it's bad relative to what we need um, to give uh, kids given the complexity of the modern economy. Um, and so, for example, uh, roughly nine, uh, if you look at ninth graders, roughly 36% of them will, will enter um, a Texas institution of higher education prepared for education, meaning not remedial um, education. So, so they'll be ready for college. Um, right. That's, a, that's, an, sort of a, that's the picture that we have now. Not just necessarily ready, but they actually made it in the door, and they're, they're in a credit-bearing class. Um, so you know, that's when you think about the state's 60 by 30 objective, we're, we're something like 25 points shy of our objective. Right. Um, so um, the, the need to improve the pace um, of, of, um, of improvement they need to increase the pace of improvement in terms of our impact on the lives of kids in terms of the level of preparation. It's, um, it's tremendous. And so we at the agency um, have gone through a, a, a strategic uh, planning process to realign our priorities around this, this vision state where every child in Texas, all of them, regardless of their background, regardless of their family circumstances, regardless of their, whether they're on the special education spectrum or not, every child is prepared coming out of K-12 for, for, what, for success later in life, success in college, success in a career, success in the military. It's not enough just to get them in the door. It's not enough just to get you into boot camp. You actually have to make it through boot camp. It's not enough to get you into college. You have to actually um, get, a, get a degree, and it's not enough just to get you out of high school um, uh, prepared for a, for a minimum wage job. We need to, you need to be prepared for a job that can take care of you and your family. So um, uh, our... Our relentless um, focus is is changing our own um, behaviors at the agency to foster this this process of continuous improvement throughout 1,200 school systems in Texas. It's a it's a very easy task. I was going to say how how hard is it? This is probably a decent question for all of you. How hard is it to maintain a medium or long term vision of what you're doing and and uh, set of priorities and goals when the tinkerers come back every? 24 months and say, well, you know, we want you to be more accountable, but you can't use any tests to measure it, or you, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, well, I've been on the job nine months, so so far it's, it's been possible. But to, not during a legislative forward. session, right? Um, so, um, no, I mean... The, the, but you know what I mean. I mean uh, I, absolutely. I mean, we're, we live in a democracy, and the, and the rules governing public education can change in some ways substantively every two years. Right. Um, but um, the... The Texas model is such that um, the legislature goes through a very deliberative uh, process, and you don't see sort of massive um, changes in direction. We are still striving for a system that it relies on transparency in terms of student, student performance and uses that transparency uh, in student performance to, to um, help focus attention to improve outcomes. And that's, that's been the same framework for roughly uh, 20 years in the state. Yeah. On the other hand... Uh, the uh, the state has been uh, very good about committing to a higher education strategic plan and seeing it through to conclusion. We just finished uh, implementing Closing the Gaps, which was launched in the year 2000 at an end date of 2015. We were very successful on that plan. Mm-hmm. We've launched another 15-year plan that Mike referred to called uh, 60 by 30 Texas uh, with the primary goal of... Uh, 
increasing the number of young adults in Texas who hold some form of college credential from approximately 38%, which it is now, right. to 60% by 2030. Right. And uh, I, I would venture that, uh, that we, will, we will stick to that plan t- uh, until 2030. Yeah, and one of the things, so the, the governors formed this tri-agency workforce um, education um, initiative. So uh, Raymond and, and I and Andre Alcantar, the Texas Workforce Commission, have been traveling in the state. But out of this um, has driven, I think, a level of alignment between K-12 and higher ed and then ultimate needs of the workforce that, that have not been achieved historically. So, for example, we're, we're working to align the framework of the accountability system in K-12 based around the 60 by 30 objectives um, um, that we've set at the higher education level. So that, uh, that alignment hasn't existed, I think, historically. Um, um, but that sets us up for a framework where hopefully we can continue to go in the same direction for, say, 15 years. I mean, the thing to remember about public education... You're reasonably education, confident that they'll stay on track. Well, I, you know, I can't predict the future. But um, the, the, without a plan, you, it's not even worth talking about. So right. we, we, in fact, do have a, a plan that allows for some degree of consistency. This is, this is the thing that's so tricky about public education relative to so many other enterprises. We, 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 don't, we don't build roads. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know what the... the, the production cycle of a road is, but a particularly complicated project might be, say, three years um, or, <laughs> or longer. Um, we'll hear the counter yeah, yeah, well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to learn. So, so, the, um, so, the, uh, so uh, our, our bottom basement um, uh, level of complexity is 15 years. Um, because we, we get them at five and they're, and they're done, um, well, we sometimes get them even in, um, a little earlier than five and, when, and done at, at 18. So the thing is, you can implement sort of systemic change in, in public education and not even notice it for a decade right. because the children have to grow up in the system. And this um, requires moving with what I would refer to as a burning sense of patience. Um, so... It's just, uh, it's, it's complicated work. So how long does it take? It takes, typically, if you're adding capacity, probably eight to ten years. Uh-huh. Um, going through the environmental process, acquiring a right-of-way, public involvement, and that's one of the challenges as well. Oftentimes, the public involvement process will start years in advance of actual construction. So people go to a town hall or go to a meeting to see pictures and concepts of this new roadway, and then... Right. Three months pass, 12 months pass, three years pass, and they're wondering what's going on while the environmental process is going on, the uh, acquiring of the right-of-way, the designing of the project is going on. And then typically once we award the contract, depending upon the scope of it, it's um, you know, three to four years to actually do the actual this construction. This explains the delay on Mockingbird in <laughs> Dallas. I appreciate this. <laughs> Yeah, the delay on Mockingbird is whose house are you going to tear down first? <laughs> so, I mean, isn't one of your biggest bottlenecks financial? Hasn't it been? It, it has been. And one of the biggest challenges, I was going to say, and it's a great challenge to have, is delivering on the additional funding coming, right. coming our way into our programs and being able to deliver those projects. Right. And what's, what's happened in our world at TechStot, one of our key documents is a 10-year planning document. Mm-hmm. Again, because of this planning cycle, we're looking at, today, we're looking at what projects are we going to award for construction in 2020, 2021, because we need to start that development work today. Right. And in that 10-year document just um, last month, 
our commission adopted it, and it has you know, spread across the state in different types of work, um, $70 billion, seven zero over the next 10 years. To give you some context, the previous version of that document, before Prop 1, before Proposition 7, before the ending of diversions, before Congress passed a federal transportation bill, was 32. Hmm. So it's more than, than doubled. And a challenge for us is, as our commission saw that, because we're looking at a 10-year horizon, typically not a two-year budget cycle, but a 10-year horizon. And since 2009, our commission looking at that knew that um, the borrowing programs of the 2000s that were the way that we advanced projects had a finite dollar amount. And so we saw our programs diminishing. And so since 2009, TxDOT has actually turned back in over 2,000 FTEs. We saw our program and our workload decreasing, so our workforce uh, was decreasing as well. Now we see the work, the workload, as I just mentioned, dramatically increasing. We're going to outsource um, a lot of that work as we historically have. But even when you outsource, you have to have somebody managing that project and keeping an eye on the timeline to make sure that you know, when the money comes in, that the projects are going to be ready to go. The, the right-of-way has been acquired. The environmental process is completed. Right. Because what we don't want is that money sitting idle. We want it you know, being put to work as soon as it comes in because everybody's experiencing congestion. Everybody knows a, a roadway that they would like to have better maintained. And so we want to put that money to work as soon as it comes in. So um, this is a hypothetical, but um, it's 2018. We're at the 8th Texas Tribune Festival. All four of you are here again, and we're grading your paper. What did you do during the last two years? What do you want the metric to be? I think the metric would, for me would be that uh, we've seen consistent improvement in the foster care system um, where um, we have seen a, a transformation of that system and where we're seeing that uh, children are more safe, uh, people who harm children are being brought to justice, which I think will also be a deterrent in that system. Um, and then we're also looking at transformation of our health and human service system uh, that's been required by Senate Bill 200. Right. Uh, I want to see a system there that is, uh, delivers a higher quality of service uh, to, our, to our clients, that we are able to break down the silos within the system of our 200-plus programs right. so that uh, we're interacting with, with public members. We can actually disseminate information so that people don't have to turn it in four, five, six different times uh, throughout the system. Uh, and also, as we're dealing with treatment of individuals, mental health, behavioral health, physical health, uh, we're doing that collaboratively because oftentimes when people present to a hospital or to a doctor or to an emergency room, there are co-occurring issues. And if you only treat one aspect, that person's going to keep coming back. Can you turn uh, that in two years? Uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to put it in the infrastructure to begin doing that. Uh, we're gonna, we will transform the agency and move the boxes. But right. that is not the end. That's the beginning. And then what we'll consistently do is develop metrics, uh, measures how we're going to do this. And I'm going to create an appetite uh, within our executive team and uh, across the system where people are going to be uh, focused on data and making data-driven decisions. And so that's, I think we will be able, you will be able to see that, and it will be noticeable. 
So how much of what you'd like to do with that agency and what is being demanded of that agency is within your scope and how much of it is um, like the legislative thing you pointed out? You know, you can turn this foster program and child protective services, if you get these many people and you get this much money, you need resources to do that. How much of the turn that you would like to make is dependent on the legislature making a turn itself? Well, I look at it from the standpoint of uh, there, there's one key component. Uh, when we were talking about the, the vision for our uh, state-supported, hospital, state-supported living centers and our state hospitals, right. uh, much like uh, they were talking about with uh, higher ed and, and, uh, and, uh, and high school uh, education, is you need to have a vision of what the future looks like. And then it's my responsibility as the executive of the agency to figure out how to get there and how to achieve that vision. And so that's one of the things we're going to ask the legislature to build for us so that it isn't just me uh, trying to drive that change. Because as executive commissioners come and go, you still need to have an overall, an overarching vision of what the agency needs to do to look, and what success looks like. Yeah. And, and so we're going to ask for that. And it will, um, I think as we are making changes and, and the legislature sees uh, the benefit of us bending the cost curve and the cost growth in uh, health and human services, at the same time of delivering quality services uh, for our citizens, I believe that that's going to be supported. Okay. What's the graduation rate going to be in two years? Well, I hope it goes up at least one percentage point a year. 1.5 to 2% would be ideal. And we, uh, we need to improve the efficiency and uh, the quality of our institutions for higher education. That's, that's the best way to grade you in two years? I didn't hear the first part of the question. That's the best way to grade you in two years? I think, I, I think that's probably the most obvious metric that uh, political leaders and the general public notice. Uh-huh. What's, what's the best way to... What's the standardized test for you? Yes. The, the, uh, um, <laughs> there are, in fact... Uh, I mean, our, our, our sole mission is to improve outcomes for students, measurable outcomes for students. So the the percentage of kids who are prepared for success in, in, the, in a post-secondary environment ha- has to go up. The, the problem is the time frame that you um, gave me. Well, so, right. So, um, so yeah. you get 15 years down the road and say, yeah, that guy was a pretty good commissioner. That's, there you go. So, um, <laughs> He's we, gone now. But... We, have to, we, we have to have some sort of formative <laughs> metrics along the way. Um, right. And you know, there are, there are a, um, a multitude of levers that I think we need to, to pull in order to see uh, uh, improvement uh, in the system. So um, one of the things is, say, the, the triage with low-performing campuses. We, we're committed publicly to re- uh, cutting the number of low-performing campuses in half um, once the A through F system is rolled out. Um, of course, back to your timeline question, the A through F system doesn't get rolled out until the fall of 2018. Right. Um, uh, we'll make some progress on that now, but you've got to remember the yardstick's going to change in two years. So given but, that it's a longer mission, what's your... What's our conversation going to be in two years? Can we well, there get are, this and this and yeah, this? Yeah, there are a whole bunch of deliverables that, um, right. that we're focused on. So, for example, um, uh, we're taking steps to actually measure the, the, um, the knowledge levels to, to ensure that parents are empowered. Parents actually know how well their kids are performing in public education. Because right. the, the, you know, at, at, it, at the end of the day, this is about um, helping uh, uh, parents um, uh, you know, raise and educate their children. And so the information that they receive from the agency, the information they receive about the, the progress that their children are making, I think that's critical. Do they understand um, 
the, the performance information in terms of how well a child has mastered their third grade skills um, right. um, because that's, that is, well, in fact, we measure that. Um, so um, how, well, um, how well is their school doing um, and do they have the ability to do something about that? So trying to equip and empower parents mm-hmm. um, is, I think, pretty important to this. Um, to this work. There's also work related to recruiting and supporting and retaining teachers. Um, so um, what are we doing in terms of educator preparation, um, which is a, the rules framework that we um, control? What are we doing to support teachers when they're in the classrooms? How are we working to improve retention, um, uh, certainly of the highest performing teachers in the classrooms? What are we doing to, to um, iterate through the high school model so that um, high school students are being prepared in a seamless way for entrance into to college, but also um, uh, uh, being inspired and, and being engaged in career opportunities. So we're looking at changes to the accountability system. So for example, um, high schools would get the same amount of credit for students um, who receive a meaningful industry credential um, as they do for kids who score above a certain threshold on the SAT or ACT. And the, the purpose of that, of course, is to then unleash a degree of creativity in terms of the pathways. You, you, you want to see students in computer science pathways in, in high school. You want to see students in health, health sciences pathways in high school. And so, this, is the, this is the idea that the, the degree or a post-secondary degree isn't the only credential it, by what you measure people. Yeah, I mean, there is a post-secondary credential of some kind, but it doesn't need to be a four-year bachelor's in, right. in English. Or a two-year associate yeah. or whatever, yeah. No, no offense to my English professor colleague over here. The, the, um, so the, the, um, so th- these are, these are the, the rocks that we're trying to move in the, in the next 24 months. Okay. Yours is easy. We can get across Houston two minutes faster at 5 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. Sure. <laughs> and I think it is people seeing progress being made on those, what, what those actually, big choke what, points. I, I, this is actually a serious question. It sounds glib. What actually moves the ball? Is it when, in public opinion, you know, I really hate what they're doing with highways. Actually, they're doing a good job. Is it just seeing some construction and some cones out there? Is it actually, hey, I got to work faster? Well, even What, what actually moves public opinion on that? A lot of things. Yeah. Um, and because even as we're working towards making that progress, realize the construction area, the work zone, can be frustrating, right? right? And so one of the things we're hoping to improve on is shrinking that construction time. So yes, I think people are happy once they see the construction beginning because they know the, the end is in sight, improvements are on their way, right. but how long is the construction going to take? And making sure that we have appropriate incentives and disincentives in our contracts to make sure that, you know, the old saying was get in, get out, stay out. Get in, fix the road, get out as quick as you can, and then hopefully we've done the work that needs to be done for right. the next 12 to 15 years. We're not back in three years later doing something else. What's the share for you guys of maintenance to construction? Um, maintenance represents probably, and this is going to change with the new funding coming in, but it's been um, roughly 60% uh-huh. of our overall budget. And one of the things, and you know, former CFO, we like to play with numbers. Right. Um, and one of the main funding sources for our programs in Texas have been the state uh, motor fuels tax, gasoline tax. And it was around, I think, 2001 when the, the amount of revenue coming in from that state fuels tax was not enough to fully support our maintenance activities. Right. The maintenance needs had gone so large. Uh, there's 192,000 lane miles of highway 
out there that we're responsible for maintaining and upholding those earlier investments, and that just takes a, a large chunk of our funding. Right. So in two years, what do you think the measure is going to be for you guys? I think seeing, having projects ready to go for the new, the new funding. Right. Um, also, being able to get that construction hopefully completed sooner. I think two years is probably going to be on the front end of that, maybe a little bit early. The last thing I'd say, and it's really a shared responsibility, and it's a, it's a scary statistic and a sobering one when we stop and think about it, um, but each and every year on Texas highways, there are roughly 3,500 people who lose their lives. The last day that we went through without a fatality on the Texas road was election day of 2000. Wow. So we're coming up on the 16th anniversary of that. And like I said, it's a, it's a shared responsibility because it is a, a dangerous task right. when we all get behind the wheel. And just the simple thing of buckling up, paying attention, not allowing yourself to be distracted um, is a responsibility we all share. But I think as TxDOT, we also have a responsibility knowing of the challenges that people have and the distractions that they may be faced with and making sure that we design forgiving roadways, if you will. So if people do have a lapse of judgment, that it's not a... Instead of hitting an abutment, I hit yellow... Maybe a guardrail or something that will help guide you back on the path. You're not hitting a column. You're, again, hitting a a barrier that's going to get you back on the path. Yes, it's going to do damage to your vehicle, but all things being said, it, it's just a vehicle. It's not correct. That can be repaired. Right. Okay. Okay. I want to ask you guys about contracting, but I also want to point out there's a microphone over here. There's a microphone over here. We have time for some uh, questions from y'all. If, you, if you've got them, just line up there, and um, I'll do the Ed, Ed, Evan Smith admonishment here. Questions, no speeches, please. Um, we'll, and we'll get to that. Um, what could you just briefly, you guys have been in the private contracting business longer and more intensively than most state agencies. Um, you guys are relatively new to it, but have a ton of contracting issues. And I know they're not the same problems, but what can the part of state government that knows a lot about contracting and keeping contractors in line teach the part of state government that's new to it? I mean, you may be, we may be doing this with private schools here pretty soon if the lieutenant governor gets his way. It seems like we're pretty good at it over here. Not perfect, but pretty good. Um, yeah, finding our way some for- in other agencies. Coming up on doing it for almost 100 years, we've learned a few things over, over those decades. And I think making sure in the, in the contract that you have an opportunity for success for the private sector partner, but you also have penalties when they don't succeed. You're able to hold their feet to the fire, if you will, that the, the product that's being contracted for is going to be delivered and be delivered in a reasonable time. Most of our work on the, you know, on the highway side is low bid. So we know going in what we expect to pay. We have our engineer's estimate. We get multiple bids on it. And if anything falls out of certain parameters, you know, we may reject all of the bids and rescope the project going forward. So that's not always a, a pleasant answer for those people who are waiting for it, but that's right. the process we go through. Okay. Over here, ma'am. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> my, my name is Cindy Castaneda. I'm from Garland ISD, former trustee and current community college professor. So I also have a great concern as an edu- professional educator about efficiency and completion rates. Uh, however, my question is for both Mr. Marath and Dr. Paredes. How do you balance that pressure 
to increase completion without totally giving up the farm. At community college right now, we're seeing a lot of pressure to accept alternative non-credit-bearing classes for credit, particularly the Straighter Line Initiative, which has been funded by EQUIP at the Department of Education to try to help people move through. But those classes are truly substandard and are coming from places that are not accredited and do not follow the typical accreditation system for education. So how, how do you balance the pressure and include innovation without selling out the farm and giving up quality entirely? Well, I, I, I think that's, a, that, that's, a, that it, that's not difficult to, to deal with. We have all kinds of ways to measure quality. We have learning outcomes. Uh, we uh, went through a tuning exercise about five years ago in which we uh, determined what the learning outcome should be in large disciplinary areas like business, like engineering, and so forth. So we shouldn't compromise on those uh, learning standards. Um, I take the position that if you, don't, if, you, if you don't give students a quality credential, it's meaningless. So rigor and quality are absolutely the most important uh, factors or most important qualities of public higher education. And there shouldn't be any way to compromise that. Uh, if if uh, organizations or services aren't accredited, that's a perfect justification not to do it. And uh, I, I can tell you that the coordinating board feels very strongly about improving quality in higher education in Texas. So we would support any initiative that says we're not going to make changes unless they maintain or raise quality. Thank you. My question is for Mr. Bass. Um, in terms of safety and efficiency of roadways, what are your thoughts on autonomous vehicles? When you talk about your 10-year plan, could be in five and 10 years we are riding in those. So what is your commentary there? Correct, yeah, that could be game-changing, and that's probably the biggest understatement I've made in a, a while. And just uh, recently, Uber in Pittsburgh has a fleet of autonomous taxis that are, are out there, and that could be obviously game-changing. The, the safety benefits that can come from that are also quite large, and the, the ripple effects throughout the economy are tremendous. We're very fortunate in Texas that we have um, great research universities um, through, across the state that are very engaged in looking at connected and autonomous vehicles. Right. And so we're plugged in with those universities, you know, kind of watching and trying to see when it's coming and is there a role, does the infrastructure need to provide anything for that to really happen, or probably a bad choice of words, can our infrastructure be dumb and all the technology is in the vehicles that can read it. Right. So we're in those conversations, but yeah, it, w it would be game-changing not only from a safety standpoint, but perhaps also from a demand standpoint as well. Is it more of a game-changer on the commercial level or on the com on consumer level? I mean, is it cars or trucks, basically? Yeah, I think it could be both. Um, right. And right now on the, on the truck side, there's actually truck platooning technology right. that's being um, tested and the regulations don't currently allow it, but, you know, going forward, could it poss possibly be that you have one driver with two or maybe more vehicles as it's platooning, and just the amount of time that a truck would then be able to stay on the road? Because if you have three drivers, you can run three drivers. Hey, you can just rotate, and they're staying on the road all the time. They're not having to get off and sit idle while the driver, you know, rests for a while. So what that changes to our, our freight network and freight demand, but then also just for the consumer and it's it's 
interesting what, how that will interact with transit. Does that increase the demand for transit? Because now if I take that trip, that last mile after I get off the transit at the station, is there an autonomous vehicle that can pick me up and take me that last mile to my ultimate destination? Does that incentivize people to take more transit than they currently right. are? Or do they say, well, if I can do that, I'm just going to take that vehicle for the entire trip because I, I don't have the stress of driving. I can sit and be on my phone or do whatever. So how, how that interacts with transit, I think, also has major implications, possibly. What's your guess on how long it takes to get those things safe enough for legislatures to change the policies? I think we're... And, and allow them. Yeah, one of the challenges on the technology side, my understanding, is the it works well in, in a well-maintained roadway in good weather. Right. And that's one of the reasons why Google is testing in you know, two places in the U.S. One of them is Austin. But the challenge is in rain and snow, where do you know where the stripes are, the lane, you know, the lane markings, and how does that go? So I, I think it's still probably closer to that tenure, but we need to start working and thinking about the impacts near term. But I think the actual day-to-day -day impacts are probably closer to that tenure time frame. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Commissioner Morath, my district, Tarkington ISD, has had a growing number of parents opt their students out from taking the STAR test, and I've even witnessed some elected officials support that idea. I want to know what the ramifications would be for my district if a large number of those parents did that all at once. What would happen to our accountability, PBMAS, uh, those kind of things? The, the way that Texas law works is that um, if a child doesn't take the test, the child's counted as a failure. Um, so large numbers of children who don't take the test would um, undoubtedly put your district into an improvement required status. Over here. <laughs> yes, I'm Becky Cope. I'm a principal in the public education system. And I live the STAR test and the accountability system. So my question to you is, when you talk about 50% growth, have you considered thinking about when you roll out all the new texts, when you roll them out, that maybe there needs to be a bigger conversation between the schools that are living them and how you envision them and how we envision them? Because there's a huge disconnect between the writing and then the actuality. So have you thought about addressing that through Khan Academy kind of videos and things like that to bring the information to the masses that are trying to see the vision of the agency? And then another question for foster care. There's a big wall between public education and what we service every day and the agencies, have you thought about building a partnership and breaking down some of that wall so that we can assist you in what you do and you can assist us in what we do in working for the whole of the child instead of working two separate silos? Okay. That's my question. You want the first part? Yeah, I actually, I wanted to ask a clarifying question. Do you mean, are you talking about the new, the new rollout of um, English language arts standards? Is that what you're Well, when you did the math... And I was, and actually I'm a proponent, I loved the new math role. I mean, I loved where we're going with that. I understand that. I think that helps our kids down the road. It's a more fluid thinking of math, which we haven't had in the past. But when you rolled that out, 
all the texts that we have to teach, they're like this, you know, wide. And I think interpretation down to the level of a daily lesson and what that should look like to build back gotcha. up to that big yeah, so- thing is have you thought about how, do you commu- how can we communicate that? Because I think on my campus, I mean, we're very successful, but on my campus, my teachers work so much harder to just say, what are they asking us to do? Because when, you f- when we first rolled out the math, there wasn't a lot of explanation. So it's basically communicating what you're trying yes. to do. Yeah, so, so the, um, the, um, the process of, of, as the standards change by the State Board of Education, um, which is actually a different body, but um, mm-hmm. when, the, when the standards change, what we're committed to do is to try to ensure that there's effective uh, training for teachers, for all of the teachers, um, mm-hmm. Um, uh, with regard to this, the new student expectations. And so there's a system referred to as Texas Gateway, where there's a bunch of online resources. And um, our, our plan is, as the new standards are rolled out by the State Board of Education, is to um, uh, increase the amount of resources available so that the, the um, unpacking process that teachers go through with regard to student expectations is more effectively done. Um, in, in addition, or at least more effectively supported, um, in addition, we've, we've um, rolled out a new initiative referred to as Lesson Study, um, where we're providing on a, um, a grant-funded basis support to teacher teams that come together, and over the course of a semester, they design one lesson around the standards. It's a, it's a model on a Japanese um, continuous improvement practice. So um, we are working to try to increase the amount of resources available to teachers in the classroom to, to try to help make sense of the stuff that is coming down from on high. Okay, thank you. Let me make her our last questioner, but let me finish her question. So is there something going on between education and foster care to coordinate this, uh, to get better education for foster care kids? Well, uh, one of the things that we're doing uh, is actually two things. Uh, One of them is prevention and early intervention, where we're working with school districts, uh, especially around uh, truancy. Uh, and, and there's some grant funds that we're utilizing, and we're also looking at expanding uh, some of these programs so that we can help the school districts there. Uh, we already have a very robust process where when teachers identify uh, children who may be subject to abuse and neglect, that they're contacting us, and we're following up and working with them. But we're also focused on early intervention, the prevention of early intervention, so we're definitely going to be looking uh, and reaching, trying to find other avenues uh, that we can partner with the uh, educational system to uh, intervene on children earlier uh, so that we can help. And also for those children that are in foster, uh, in the foster care system, is ensuring that they continue to receive uh, the, the training, whether that's um, receiving schools. Sometimes they come to the residential treatment centers. Right. Uh, teachers from the school district will provide uh, educational services there. And then other times, the children are actually going to the, to the schools in their community. We, we've seen a lot of success with models that have um, uh, caseworkers, um, sort of case management um, folks that are then bringing in a bunch of disparate resources around the in, individual needs of, of individual children. Right. Um, we've seen a lot of success when that, those resources are embedded either in a school or in a feeder pattern around a school. Um, so we're certainly interested in trying to increase the availability of those, um, those resources to the extent that they're... Um, uh, getting results for kids. Okay, great. Charles Smith, Raymond Paredes, Mike Morath, James Bass, thank you very much. Give me a hand.